ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. A lot of us may have dabbled in using AI to create a new artistic profile picture for ourselves or even make a mock-up for a graphic designer to work from. But there's a much, much darker side to the use of artificial intelligence to create images and videos. And now the Australian government is taking big steps to stop it from being shared. Plus, there's a gender gap in the electric vehicle market. What's causing it and how do we fix it? Also, battling misinformation by verifying health professional content creators on YouTube. And if you have an iPhone, update it now. We look at the risks of spyware. All of this and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Ray Johnston and welcome to Download This Show. It is a new episode of Download This Show. I'm Ray Johnston, filling in for Mark Fennell. And this week I am joined by Jennifer Dudley-Nicholson, a future transport reporter at AAP. Great to have you, Jen. Great to be here. Thank you. And a welcome back also to Alex Kidman, freelance tech journo and co-host of Vertical Hold. Great to hear your voice, Alex. Nice to be here also. Now, Australia is leading the way, cracking down on child abuse material being made by artificial intelligence. Alex, can you tell us what's been announced? So this is a new code uh, that's been developed around the growth of AI functions in things like search engines. So this has been known for a while, this idea that instead of going to a Google, for example, and just, you know, searching for pizza recipes, instead it will use AI to generate a pizza recipe that it shows you. In this case, it's making sure that it's generating pizza recipes, those are fine, and not objectionable material uh, such as child abuse material. So how exactly is this kind of content being made, Jen? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't want to tell people how to make it, but yeah, so so essentially it's using um, the, the, the AI tools that are within search engines like Google and Microsoft. So both Google and Microsoft have said that within their search engines, they're going to incorporate smarts from BARD and uh, chat GPT. And so essentially uh, you can create images and, and, and text based on class one material, which is like child abuse material and terrorist material. And it can create things that aren't exactly, you know, lifelike images, but are created on that basis. And so that's the concern that Australia's eSafety Commissioner had. So when, you know, they, the, these big tech giants came back and said, you know, these are the, the rules that we'd like to put in place, she said, uh-uh, plot twist, we actually want you to make sure that your AI that you're incorporating in your, into your search engines actually doesn't do these things as well because we don't want to have real-life uh, child sex abuse material, but we also don't want to have the AI kind. They call it synthetic um, child abuse material. All of it is terrible and bad and shouldn't appear on search engines. Is this something that big tech platforms have tried to crack down on themselves, Alex? Uh, look, yes, to an extent. So a lot of the relevant AI generators don't really allow you to use, let's say, a lot of obvious terms that could produce this kind of objectionable material. If you if you type that into a chat GPT or a similar generator, it'll say, 
it'll just say, no, I won't produce that kind of material. So there's that side of it. Also, uh, a lot of them claim that they're using large model sets of acceptable material in order to train their AI more intelligently. Basically, the better material they have going in, the better the AI is at detecting, hang on, this is not on the level or, you know, wouldn't uh, wouldn't pass the legal requirements. So is this new regulation being introduced, is this an example of the lawmakers just trying to play catch up as AI continually moves ahead? We know that regulation can be quite slow. AI is moving quite fast. Are we keeping up sufficiently, Jen? Not really. No. I mean, this is this is a great effort and, and I, I don't want to besmirch that. So, I mean, this is this is a particularly advanced kind of a, approach to regulating AI, which we haven't necessarily seen in all facets of it so far. So, I mean, the problem is in the race between regulators and technology, regulators are as slow as a technology journalist in the final stages of an ultramarathon. And I'm referring specifically to myself here. I can't do that. <laughs> but government and, and regulation and laws happen slowly. They kind of have to because they have to make sure that they're they're thorough and everything's considered and everything's consulted upon. But that's not the way that AI has worked and that is not the way that technology in general works. And so we're seeing a real chasm between the two at the moment. There's a lot of unintended consequences that can potentially happen from AI and we're certainly seeing some of those. I think that we're going to be dealing with the implications of this for a while to come while there are laws developed around its use, the way it should be used, the way it shouldn't be used, and how you label it so that people actually know that it's being used and and can use their, their extra cynicism hat. Right, because there's already automated processes in place to stop the spread of child abuse material online. There's algorithms that have been trained to detect certain features of known existing content that were originally identified by human moderators. But what would be needed, do we know, to detect AI-generated content like this? Well, look, presumably you would need a a, a really objectionable um, set of material to act as a kind of counterbalance against, you know, this is an acceptable photo of a child playing in a sprinkler, this is not that kind of thing without going into too much detail. Uh, and that kind of thing would be would be fairly grim. It does raise that issue, and it's this classic one around our algorithmic detection, which we need. Let's, you know, let's not be perfectly the enemy of good and all that. But it does raise that issue around things like false positives. None of this stuff is easy to solve, but it is good to see that we are at least thinking in regulatory terms even now, even if it is likely to be a bit sluggish as a result of, yeah, the way legal process works. And this regulation is world leading. Australia is leading the charge on this. Could we see other countries following suit? Yeah, look, the reaction I've seen from overseas publications has been very positive. And so I think this is another case where Australia's, you know, potentially out in front of the pack, even though the pack is is all quite slow. Um, it's not the first time that Australia has led regulation of tech platforms. And so, you know, potentially, you know, if this works and it's proven to work, it could be adopted by other countries. And I can certainly see jurisdictions like Europe, for example, where they've, they've shown that they're very keen to regulate privacy in particular. I could see them picking up something like this and, and adding it to the, the suite of, of restrictions and for things that, that tech companies need to be looking out for. Although, to be honest, this is the most objectionable material and so tech companies should really be thinking about this in addition to just having rules in place. Yeah. Do you think that this regulation could be expanded to include other deep fake material, things like political misinformation? 
I think we do need to have a look at that because it's easy enough to kind of apparently to to confuse people with material that's not deep fake. And so, I mean, we've seen weird deep fakes of of Donald Trump come out recently, although I would point out that have a look at the hands in some of these images because they become, there's extra fingers involved. It's like (laughs) the Simpsons. It's it's very strange when it comes to hands. But I I think that we do need um, definitely more regulation and more labelling around when AI is being used. However, I would say that it needs to be carefully considered because while political misinformation is definitively a problem, you also then run against uh, issues around freedom of artistic expression and so on. This stuff is never simple. Do you think these regulations go far enough or is there more that needs to be done? I think there's always more that can be done. Uh, I mean, Jen was already highlighting there the idea that uh, the tech companies get a bit more on board with this. And I'm certainly not suggesting that they're not already or that they're ignoring this purely in the name of profit. But again, I think you do hit that wall of making sure that you've got laws and regulations in place that are fit for purpose without necessarily being overreaching or having other unintended consequences that, uh, that, that stifle legitimate expression online. Not that I'm defending class one material because I'm certainly not intending to do that. Download this show is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And it turns out there's a gender gap in electric vehicles. Jen, what do the stats say on this? I am so disappointed in this. Um, (laughs) So we already know that there's a gender gap between men and women when it comes to buying vehicles. And so in the US, for example, um, 59% of men buy vehicles, 41% of women buy petrol cars. And so that that's the split. So it's already in favour of the men. But this, this group, Edmonds, was doing some research and found out that when it comes to electric vehicles, that gender gap is much bigger. And so we've got basically two-thirds of men buying electric cars and only one-third of buyers are women. Wow. So it's, it seems really strange. And it, it looked, full, full credit to the researchers, they, they looked at all sorts of opinions that men and women hold about electric vehicles and, and sort of, you know, what, what approaches they take to them. But in general, it was not good news for electric vehicle manufacturers who are looking to sell to women. So why does this disparity exist, Alex? Well, they identified a couple of issues that I think are kind of key, Um, one of which was that a lot of the women that they surveyed felt as though they didn't know enough about EVs, Um, and this was despite the fact that they had fairly even numbers, uh, still slightly more slanted towards towards a male demographic, but fairly even numbers of what they call tech enthusiasts, of, uh, of drivers who were interested in the technology, and that's often the way that EVs are presented, that they're this big tech kind of thing, but still uh, women felt that they, in their survey, uh, felt that they didn't uh, they didn't know enough about the technology and they were more likely to look at buying hybrid vehicles than full electric, for example. Jen, is this a marketing problem? I think some of it is a marketing problem and some of it is a communication problem as well. I think, um, I mean, traditionally the car market has not been very female friendly or female focused. And so part of it is that, you know, these, these cars aren't potentially being marketed to women. Part of it is because men are traditionally seen as, as sort of the first two automotive technology as well. Um, there is still a disparity between men and women when it comes to uh, just vehicles in general. Like the you don't see many female mechanics out there. You certainly don't see many female automotive journalists. I can vouch for that. It's rare to see auto brands headed by female executives. I can think of one off off the top of my head. 
I was recently told by someone I was interviewing that um, you probably have never looked under the bonnet of a car. False. Oh. I have many times and many types of vehicles. But there's there's an assumption there that, that women kind of aren't interested in vehicles or, or aren't interested in the, the purchasing process for vehicles as well. It's shocking that that stereotype still exists. It is, and it's one of the last vestiges, I've got to say. There's no greater male-dominated industry that I've, I've come across in, in various spheres. Even in technology, there are more women, and there's certainly, you know, if, if you look at, you know, Apple and Samsung and Google events, there's more women on stage now who are even repre- represented in engineering as opposed to, to vehicles where you just don't see it anymore. Do you think that part of this might be an income problem? Because when we talk about the gender gap, we're usually talking about in income. Women do still earn on average less than men and EVs aren't exactly cheap. It certainly can't help. Uh, I mean, I feel like I'm I'm talking from the other side of the gender fence here because I guess I am. Although I wonder about these stats and especially the kind of relevancy here in Australia because in the US, of course, uh, while they did cite rising what they call gas prices uh, as as a concern for EV buyers, of course, historically, uh, petrol in the US has been considerably cheaper than it has here. Um, so I wonder if there if there aren't other economic signifiers that might hopefully level that out. I think it'd be really good to see that levelled out. But equally, it'd be really good to see the pay gap levelled out too. Jen, do you already drive an EV? I drive one when I can borrow one, and I'm I've been very tempted um, by some of the the smaller, cheaper models on the market. I like a small car, and and these EVs are incredibly zippy. I think it, it, it potentially does make a difference that women are paid 22% less and then asked to pay the same amount for a giant car. So maybe there should be discounts for women. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, I, I'm not against it. But for, for women out there who don't think that they know enough about electric vehicles, I would suggest two things. And that is one, take one out for a test drive because you might be surprised by just what the technology does and, and feels like and operates like. And to talk to somebody who already owns one, because my goodness, they will talk to you about their their electric vehicle. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but also their experience is probably different. Like one of the things that actually came up in the research was women were more concerned about range, whereas the experience of range anxiety and and, and sort of, you know, getting to the the next top up isn't necessarily what you think when you're driving an electric vehicle every day. And so I think that's really important for people to consider. You are listening to Download This Show. I'm Ray Johnston and I'm joined by Jennifer Dudley-Nicholson, a future transport reporter at AAP, and Alex Kidman, freelance tech journo and co-host of Vertical Hold. And everywhere you turn online, you can find unqualified content creators giving you medical advice. Everything from weight loss to mental health, and it can be quite dangerous. YouTube, however, has decided to do something about it. Alex, what's YouTube doing? So in the UK, they're looking at creating a verification system for health workers, basically a badge to say, yes, this person is a a licensed GP, is a nurse, vaguely might know what they're talking about, and then prioritising that material when you do a search on a particular health topic. Basically a kind of shelf of, look, this is the stuff which might actually be helpful, here's everyone else. So a kind of two-tiered system of of presenting health-related material uh, via video. This sounds like a fantastic idea, but what do health professionals actually have to do to be verified? 
Yeah, so it's quite an involved process by the sound of it. So they actually have to have an active medical licence. They have to also have not posted disinformation videos in the past, which I think is pretty important. And then YouTube actually works with the licensing body for their particular medical profession to make sure that they are legitimate. And it's it's much more than just, you know, having an, an email address and a credit card that earns you a blue tick on other platforms, for example. <laughs> so do you think this will work to combat misinformation on YouTube? No. <laughs> Sadly, Alex. No. Come on. Oh, look, I hate to be the party pooper here. <laughs> I, I don't think it's, a, again, I don't think it's a bad idea. I don't think it's a bad idea, but the, the practical reality here for YouTube is there's so much content. And the one thing that they're doing here, which I think is good, is the verifying people who are qualified. But at the same time, they're not throwing a badge onto the people who are not. They're not throwing a little scrolling thing saying, by the way, this idiot telling you to eat leeches doesn't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and until they, until they actually do that, until they actually start pointing out to people, hang on, what you're watching is not necessarily on the level, I can think of a dozen different ways that were I interested in peddling leeches, I could do so. You know, the leech trick that the medical establishment doesn't want you to know about. (laughs) That kind of thing. Do you think it could work, Jen? Uh, Look, I I think that nobody should buy leeches from Alex. I'm putting that out there straight away. Um, I think that it's actually useful. And we have seen something similar from Google in the past, so, you know, YouTube's parent company, where when you search for a particular, um, you know, medical condition, then they often provide you with like a, a, a box of verified information. So you can say, you know, okay, maybe I'm, I'm not dying of cancer because I have an ingrown hair in my forehead. <laughs> and I think that that's important for people. And so this is this is kind of extension to that. I think that YouTube is in kind of a, a tricky place, like a, a lot of social networks as well. There is some good information in videos and also bad information in videos. This is kind of going towards at least the authenticity of of the person creating the video so they're not just cosplaying as a doctor. I think it is ultimately useful. Is it going to solve all their problems? Absolutely not. And I would point out too that there are doctors that go rogue. There are few of them, fewer of them that go rogue than do just in the general population, which is just full of rogues. Um, but but there there still is is reason to you know question material that is produced by these people. But potentially you're getting a better quality, and so hopefully it's guiding people towards that better quality of video. Are there any risks for YouTube to be verifying health content? Yeah, I think there are. Um, this is so this, just to throw up one example. This is a UK based scheme, so it's going to be working through the NHS. It's going to be working through the UK medical system, which means if I were a UK GP and I was dispensing advice on YouTube, I'm going to be doing it based on that knowledge. I'm going to be doing it based on drugs and treatments and therapies that are available, perhaps available on the NHS only and not here, for example. And YouTube's reach is global. So somebody could see something and go, oh, well, I should have that therapy for this thing that I think I've got, because I think a lot of people who are searching this stuff up are unsure as to what their medical issues might be. And, you know, I I hasten to add, please see actual medical professionals in person as much as you can, because that's probably going to yield better results. But 
if you if you show off a process or a drug that's not available here, people are then going to get the wrong end of the stick with that, potentially avoid actual therapies that they could get. There are some risks involved with this because the badge saying verified is also going to lend a degree of uh, a veracity to these claims. And I'm not saying people are lying, but they may not be applicable in every case, every health circumstance and every jurisdiction. Are there any concerns that you have about this scheme, Jen? Yeah, it's just that idea that that people may go to YouTube rather than going to a doctor. Um, I don't think you should do that with any platform, no matter how verified the people on it are. I think that you really need to be careful that about the kind of advice that is going out on these these you know particular services. That it's it's general in nature. It's not meant for any specific individual. Don't look at Alex and by leeches again, I would also just like to <laughs> underline that. There does still need to be moderation of this content and, and guidance for creators about what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing, you know, what what's helpful in general, but isn't necessarily going to stop people from, you know, spending the money and going to a doctor. Do we need something like this here in Australia, locally? Can you see it expanding? I think yes, um, we 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 could use something like this because one of the one of the issues that we know we've got, especially for remote and regional areas, is that question of physical access to a GP. And obviously, there are there are moves in telehealth and things like that. But potentially, a GP being able to say, right, well, I've already got a video that runs through how you do uh, this particular process. In fact, I can think of one from a medical procedure that I had earlier in the year with a specialist that I saw said, right. By the way, here's a YouTube link on how to actually use. It was an applicator for a, for a medicine. I won't go into any other detail because it's kind of gross. But, <laughs> and it was great. It, it genuinely helped me. But being able to know, right, well, this is actually properly how you use it and not in fact that I should have filled the syringe with leeches in the first place <laughs> would have been a good thing. Download this show is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And if you have an iPhone, you might have recently gotten an alert to update it now. Alex, explain to us why Apple is issuing this warning to iPhone users. So iPhones historically, the, the, the iOS platform that runs iPhones has been reasonably secure. Nothing is ever 100% secure. But uh, they recently identified some really nasty, malicious bugs in um, the way their image presentation software works and the way their wallet works, which could potentially allow spyware to uh, basically take over the functions of your phone, certainly monitor what your phone is doing. And when I say potentially, I'm kind of mollycoddling this because there's a fair amount of evidence that actually this has been used by various large government bodies and uh, malicious actors already. So, Jen, what exactly is spyware? Take us back. What, what can people do with this? Yeah, it's it's kind of exactly what it sounds like. So it's it's genuinely using uh, technology and, and software to spy on your phone. So um, in this particular case, they they've discovered a flaw that um, had allowed uh, this group to install a notorious kind of spyware called Pegasus, and this has previously been used to spy on journalists. So obviously, I'm not I'm not for that whatsoever. Um, and also politicians. And it, it was used by um, a, a particular Israeli cyber intelligence group. And so they, they discovered that that had been used. And this is a particularly pervasive software. So it can do things like access your location, monitor your calls. It can access the camera on your device and, and look at what stupid face you're, you're making while you're scrolling <laughs> in, indefinitely. 
it's truly scary stuff and the kind of thing that John Grisham would love for his latest novel. Like it has thriller written all over it. But but you can also install this potentially without any sort of malicious link, without, you know, coming in contact with the device. And I think that's potentially one of the scariest parts about it, just because normally when we think about, you know, spyware or accessing a device, we think of, you know, I clicked on the wrong link. Whereas in this case, that didn't happen. So... It does seem like we hear a bit less about spyware than we used to. You know, for this to be news for us to be talking about, you know, obviously it's not something at the front of most people's minds every day. Are we getting better at fighting spyware before it happens or is it just not as common as it used to be? I think it's as common as it's ever been. There's certainly a lot of interest from uh, these groups that, you know, want to spy on journalists, want to get into politicians' phones or even celebrities' phones, for example. Uh, so so I, don't, I don't think the prevalence is so much lower. Uh, there's certainly been a lot of resources thrown at trying to fight it. And what's interesting here is how quickly Apple's moved on this one because Apple's track record, whilst its general security has actually been very, very good, its track record in terms of how it's talked to the security community and how quickly it's responded to certain flaws in the past has not always been spot on. So they're definitely jumping on this stuff a bit faster. And I think in this case, yeah, it does relate to that issue of it being essentially execution free. You don't have to do anything. They just have to go, right, we'll, we'll ping you this malicious image will ping you this malicious file and just the fact that your phone is online can, uh, you know, can enable it to happen. What's the best way that we can protect ourselves from spyware as individuals? When your phone starts nagging you to do an update, do a freaking update. Like, it's, <laughs> And I did have this earlier in the week. I use an iPhone and so it, it did sort of nag me as soon as I woke up. And so, look, it, it was painful to be, you know, without my phone while, even while I was in the shower and it was updating. Jim! <gasps> I know. I just, I like to know that it's there. I, I have I have fear of missing out apparently even while I'm away. <laughs> However, it's, it's worth the investment of time in just making sure that you're absolutely up to date. And all of the flaws that are known about are actually patched. Up. I think that is sort of baseline, the most important thing. And, and it's definitely worth just periodically checking in case you don't get an, you know, a notification that you're not on the latest software. And it's also worth scrutinising the apps that you download and the links that you click on, because that's typically the way that malware will sort of enter your phone. It used to be the case that Apple was touted as you know, the devices and the operating system that couldn't really be at risk of this sort of thing, or, or if it was, it wouldn't get to you, they'd detect it beforehand. Is it still the case that different devices, brands, operating systems are at different risk levels for consumers, or is it just an even playing field these days? It's not an entirely even playing field if you look at the kind of general malware and spyware stats, but that's to do with market size. And part of the reason, of course, that the, the iPhone gets attacked is because there's a lot of iPhones out there. They've got huge market share in a way that they don't, for example, with their MacBooks. With the, the Mac platform still has its issues with malware and spyware as well. But compared to Windows, they're absolutely dwarfed, which means that the, the people who are writing this software, they go where the money is and they go where they can get away in. 
Apple, again, has been a little bit better um, with iPhones than Android has. And there's also been uh, one other issue we kind of haven't raised is this issue around older devices or devices that don't get quite as many updates. That's a bit more of a problem on the Android side of the fence than iPhone. But if you've got a much, much older iPhone that's no longer getting updates, then you're potentially kind of paddling in risky waters, as it were. So the parting message for today is absolutely update your phones, folks. Do it. Do it now. (laughs) Put it down. Spend some time (laughs) away from the screen. I'd love to see your screen time, Jen. Uh, I don't know if if, if you would. Maybe science would. (laughs) (laughs) A big thank you to Jennifer Dudley-Nicholson, future transport reporter at AAP. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for getting me away from my phone. <laughs> and a big thank you as well to Alex Kidman, freelance tech journo and co-host of Vertical Hold. Great to have you. Happy to be here. Not so happy that you've ruined my leech business. <laughs> <laughs> Remember to follow, download this show on the ABC Listen app so that you never miss an episode. I'm Ray Johnston and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.